Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. It's Roxanne Derhotch. Thanks for tuning in again today to Authentic Living with Roxanne. Today I have somebody um, that I think is going to be kind of fascinating. And um, her name is Brandy Maslowski. And she she is a different background from someone that I think I would have interviewed before because she has unique skills um, in quilting which I know nothing about, which I have to admit, um, and how that plays through with healing. So uh, Randy is um, a speaker as well. And um, so I'm, I'm very, very curious about what she does in the world and how does one grow up uh, to go out and speak and train and heal others through quilting. So Brandy, um, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Roxanne. I'm really excited to be on this show because this is just such an important topic, talking about how we can use craft in our life to help with our own personal healing. Well, you know, I often think, right, so I have a, I have a son and when I was young, when he was young, um, yeah, I would do crafts and then he kind of phased out, right? So, you know, I did it, which I loved. Because, you know, when, you know, when you're younger, you think nothing of all the stuff that, it, you know, it's such an important part of play, right? We think nothing of it. But when you start to kind of get older and you're not, you don't think of it as an option. So I think I love the fact that you do it and I, I you know, want to learn um, kind of what you do. And, you know, for people that are listening to the audio, you're not going to see this room that uh, Randy's in, but I... I can see there's like spools of stuff and drawers and, you know, um, there's a Canadian flag back there um, in a picture. Lots of, it just looks like a kind of place that you'd want to tinker around in. Um, so, Brandy, tell me, um, how did, this is going to be interesting. How did this all get started? Well, you know, it is kind of an interesting story because I have, moved in my career from firefighter to quilter to quilt professional and it's kind of like one of those stories where you've taken your side gig your passion and you've made it your real deal um, but I have a history in firefighting in central Canada I was a firefighter for 15 years before I moved across Canada to BC and in those 15 years as a firefighter I experienced uh, a great deal of traumatic incidents on the scenes and moved into the public education to sort of get away from that, what I was seeing and trying to deal with. And then once I moved into public education, I had the trauma of a toxic workplace. So there are all kinds of things that have happened along my life um, that, you know, 
made me feel like I was too much or I was not enough. Or, you know, I felt like people were saying, who do you think you are being a female in this man's world and those kind of things. So I dealt with all that for many, many years. And eventually I, I just had to walk away from that because I couldn't, I couldn't cope with how to deal with it or make it better. I wasn't going to change other people. I had to fix myself and deal with the healing myself. So we moved across Canada and my passion for quilting was always something that I did on the side. And I didn't realize until a decade into it that I was using this craft as a form of healing for myself. And, you know, every time something traumatic happened in my life, whether it was the workplace or the loss of a grandparent, I would dive into my craft room or my studio and I would just start creating and it would really help me work through those emotions. So that's kind of the beginnings of my story. And it just blossomed from there. So let's, let's back up a little bit because um, that's an untraditional career, mm-hmm. right? Um, at the time you were probably getting, and it's still pretty untraditional for females. It's, it's, I would say it's coming along, but it's still not a conventional um job that we would hear about a lot of females going into what made you want to enter into firefighting that's a really good question because i don't like looking back i think why on earth did i put myself through that career (laughs) you know but the reality is i had an english degree i didn't know what i was going to do was i going to become a poet like what do you do with an english degree was i going to go into education or physical education or something like that and right at the time when i graduated from university Uh, I saw this big ad in the newspaper for we're looking for firefighters. And I thought, I mean, it just hit me right in the heart because I mean, decades later, having gone through years and years of counseling, I know that I became a firefighter because my dad's a firefighter and I wanted to please him. And, and my uncle's a firefighter, my great grandfather's a firefighter. And it really hit me in the heart. But back then I had no idea I was trying to please a father in a family that was split up and all that kind of stuff. Now I understand what I did, but going into firefighting, I really believed that, you know, women were equal and there, you know, everything was kind of wonderful and, you know, women's lib was over, but I was really quite wrong when I got into it. And I, I faced the challenges every single day that women face to this day on jobs that are primarily led by men. Hmm. So, interesting right like because you grew up in a family that clearly as as a girl you thought nothing of you know entering a male-dominated kind of environment so you think hey I'm gonna I'm gonna become a firefighter right and then you go in what were some of the I'm gonna say rude awakenings that you came up against as a young firefighter Well, the first kind of surprise was that my father, I mean, my father was so supportive and amazing going through the process of becoming a firefighter. But the first thing he said to me was, oh, no, you, you, you don't want to be a firefighter. And I was like, I can do it. He goes, oh, there's no question in my mind. You can do it. He goes, 
but you're going to be dealing with some stuff. He did, he knew how I was going to be treated before I even got on. Uh, but regardless, he he backed me up, supported me, lifted me up. He we worked so hard together to pass help me pass the physicals and everything, but the big thing that I encountered, the first thing that really opened my eyes was in the job related physical. So it was a 9-month process way back then in 1995. It was nine months to get on the job for me. And we went through all these different testings and physicals. And the last thing was the job-related physical. And I went to that physical. There was about maybe 24 people that day doing the job-related physical, all men. I was the only female that day. And one by one, people were failing out because they dropped something or fell off. They, they, they got tested for their, I don't know, their vision and they they found out they were colorblind and they didn't know it or you know there were people getting dropping like flies one by one and there was probably about 18 of us left and we were cheering each other on the men were cheering for me I was cheering for them we, were, we all kind of got cohesive there but the last thing we did that day was the ladder lift and this is the thing I'll describe where you have to walk up to a line pick up a ladder put it on a wall and then take it back off the wall and put it back behind the line without lifting your ankles when you put it on the wall and taking female male out of the equation. This is a hard exercise to do if you're short and I'm generally shorter than the average man. I'm five, eight, so I'm pretty tall, but you know, a which lot is, of which is not short. Yeah, I know. And so, but a <laughs> lot of men are, are six foot tall, right? And this, this was designed for men. All these exercises were designed for with men in mind. And so this was really difficult for me to do. And so I did it and I had practiced in my dad's barn over and over again. We knew this test was coming. I walked up there and slammed that ladder on the wall, picked it up, put it back, slammed it down. And I cheered like alone saying yes so I did it right but the problem with the whole test was at the end there before we started that test the officers called my name first to do it first and then they brought me into this secluded outbuilding and closed the doors and we do it in seclusion I was like oh okay so I did it and then when it came out and opened the doors my dad was there in plain clothes and he was looking at me and he's like did you do it and I I said, well, of course I did. I would have been kicked out if I didn't do it. And then my dad kind of looked away kind of sheepishly, like he kind of knew, oh, they might have given me a second chance because I'm the token female. And oh, what they did in that moment was they flew open the doors, they corralled all the other men in, and they all did it in front of everyone. And I was the only one who did it in seclusion. And from that moment on, I realized like, oh, no one's ever going to know that I did it myself. They're going to think I got a few chances. I'll never be able to prove that I really did it, right? So what an opportunity to have demonstrated yeah. your clear capacity, yeah. like, you know, it, on the first, on the first, you didn't even know you had a second go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So, so that was the first inroads into recognizing that maybe yeah. the disparity that dad was alluding to was really, in fact, um, deep rooted in kind of the yeah. the field that you were picking. Yeah. And he knew like he really knew deep down that I was going to be treated quite poorly throughout my career. But he also really believed I'd be able to deal with it. Um, and, you know, the, the next big thing that really was kind of crushing, like kind of, you know, you can get your spirit crushed a little bit, bit by bit. And the next thing that happened immediately in the first 16 weeks of training, once I got on the job, was the officer in charge 
told, there was a couple females in the class, which was really unusual. And he told two of us who had long hair that we had to cut our hair off. And he said it was in the collective agreement and he made it sound so official. And, oh, this, there was this beautiful black woman, a friend of mine who had to cut her, her braids off and I cut my hair off. And um, when we got on the job after 16 weeks and we met a couple of the other women on the job, they were like, you did what? You do not have to cut your hair off. You simply have to have it off your collar and curled up and under your helmet. And I was so devastated, mostly for Rose, really, because she had these gorgeous lifelong braids. And never to this day has she ever grown them back. I mean, mm -hmm. I was lucky. You know, my hair grows quite quickly. But Brandy, what year, what year was this in? That was 1995. Wow. Not that long ago. Yeah. Wow, wow. You know, and when we confronted him later, like we didn't have to cut it. He's like, yeah, well, you really should have. I wanted you. I thought, you know, like it was not, uh, it was his own personal decision to tell us that. And it wasn't anything we were required to do. So it was pretty sad. A lot of opportunity to have things to heal from. Yeah, yeah. Other than the actual, um, actual tasks associated with what happens in firefighting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think like I would say the first five years when I was on the fire trucks, um, the thing that hurt me most was the trauma that I saw in the field, the people who were in distress that hurt me the most and was buried the deepest. And it's the stuff I've really had to deal with to this day. Um, I loved the men I worked with in the fire halls and that I was really able to deal with, you know, um, the men I worked with by rolling things off the back and having a lot of comedy involved. And I worked super hard and took every course and I was like top of my class in everything. So the fact that I excelled so well really kept me, you know, in the good books with a lot of these men, um, but moving into a toxic workplace afterwards for the last 10 years of that career was extremely difficult because I worked with men who hated me being there and they, they hated that I was senior to them and they, they didn't feel it was appropriate that I was, you know, in a job that that's only for them. And so that was just day to day, fifth, like the last 10 years of my career was just was a lot, which is a long time. Yeah, doing kind of work. So of course, you know, for if you want to kind of tell them some of the things, comp um, PTSD is just. I, I often say, and maybe you're better at defining this, but I often say that we're not wired for some of the things that say. You know, um, I was a first responder with the police in Toronto, um, and I was with a team of fourteen other responders. Um, we were victim services. We respond to the victims of crime. I'm sure you you know what because we would you would be deployed oftentimes at the same time as the police. On my team, and goodness, I was probably um, I was talking about 1991. Uh, you know, they would do these psychological tests, and we had a team of 14, of which all of us showed high levels of um, PTSD, and one person on our team was suicidal. So it shows you, and I stayed in that role um, for four, five years, right? So we're not equipped as human beings. Uh, I think short-term stress, absolutely. But in, in these EMS roles, uh, police, paramedic, firefighting, uh, police officers, first responders, like in my case, um, 
the body and the brain can only adapt to certain things. And then eventually uh, what happens is that we, we, I'm going to say, they'll use the word split or thought and feeling to be able to cope and be able to keep ourselves together. But the brain and the body eventually keeps those symptoms that shows itself in other ways. So I don't know if that makes sense or if there's something that you would share from your perspective, what are some of the, the symptoms that started to develop in you that made you think, Oh, you know, I got, I gotta, I gotta do some, yeah. some healing stuff for me. Well, the first real, you know, experience where I realized something is seriously wrong. Something is seriously wrong was um, I just, I asked, you know, one of the chiefs, if I could go to this workshop, the city workshop called stress in the workplace. I wanted to learn about, because I was just like not doing well and I was sick and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with my body. It all became physical for me and I got very, very ill, lost like 20 pounds. And uh, I went to this stress in the workplace. And so during this seminar, we learned all about stress in the workplace and then we filled out a stress test at the end. And then I think we were supposed to get centaur results. But the next morning at 7 a.m., 7.30 a.m., something like that, I, was, I remember I was sitting in my car, just kind of frozen, kind of dreading going in. And I just sat there and sat there and I waited till the last second. And then five minutes before I had to be there, I ran into work. And I thought, this is just not right. I can't, I don't even want to go into the workplace. And I got a phone call the minute I sat down at my desk on my start time from the person who led that stress in the workplace and she said how are you right now and I said I'm good and she goes you know I'm looking at the results of your stress test and I'm thinking maybe you should come in and have a chat with me and I was like oh okay and she said you are in the most suicidal zone of anyone who's ever taken this stress test of anyone I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, um, she actually told me that once I got in there and we were talking about it and I was like, I am not suicidal. I promise. And she goes, I understand that you're, you know, you're not suicidal, but you have zero self care. And she said, did you brush your hair today? And I realized I hadn't. She said, did you have a shower? Did you brush your teeth today? And I hadn't. You know, I had rolled out of bed, thrown my hair in a ponytail, gotten on my wrinkled uniform and gone to work and my self-care was gone. So that made me really realize, okay, something's seriously wrong. And there was another little situation with my child that really made me realize, okay, I have to quit my job immediately because this is just not working for me. And just to tell the quick story, I came home from work on a day that I had this really, really toxic verbal encounter with one of my coworkers, and you know he was accusing me of trying to get him fired all these crazy stuff was going on and I just could not care less about them or their jobs or anything like that and I wasn't trying to do anything and um, I came home from work and my husband took one look at me and he said oh I'll I'll go make dinner and he just turned around and went into the kitchen I went straight downstairs and started stitching and I was in full uniform with my bars and my my tunic on and my tie. I didn't have my cap on, but, you know, I was in full uniform, stitching away. And my son comes to the door of my sewing room and he says, Mommy, I want to play clay. And I just brushed him off and said, if I something along the lines of if I could just keep if I could just get these, you know, eye masks made and these oven mitts made, I'll have a good craft show this weekend and I could just quit my job you know, 
And to a six-year-old, that is like a little bit beyond. He just rolls off his back and he's like, oh, well, okay, I'll go play. And then a little while later, he comes back into my room with a handful of paper money that he had made for me so that I could quit my job. Oh, my goodness. And I just burst into tears. I had this sudden realization I haven't even greeted my child. I hadn't picked him up. I hadn't swung him around. I literally slunk down into the basement just to try to do something methodical with my mind to get over what I'd had to face that day. And, you know, that money that my son made for me made more, it meant more to me than any other money I will ever make in my life. And it made me realize I need to focus on my family. I need to focus on self-care and I need to leave this situation immediately. And uh, that was my first big realization. Okay, we've got to figure something else out. And it's funny, right? Like, um, you know, I, when I decided to go into the psychological field, I, I, you know, I was a first responder at 22 years old, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, my very first call. This is me, right? Like, you know, I'm, tw you know, I'm ready. I'm 22. I know everything, don't I? Yeah. And um, so, uh, you know, of course, I had to learn how to drive an unmarked police car, you know, had the miter, all that stuff, right? So you're like, I think about now I'm thinking I'm 22, you know, what did I know? And I remember our first call is a suicide call. So my partner who had been on, you know, they paired you up obviously with a partner that would done it for a while. And I, the fear, I remember we were going, it's in Toronto and I'm like, oh my oh my God, this is real. This is what's flying through my head. And, um, you know, here you have this things about I'm going to help someday. And you really, from the bottom of my heart, that's why I picked it. And then I remember seeing my, my partner saying to me, she goes, so we can make the block. I mean, we can circle the block. And I said to her, yeah. And this is, this is my very first call. So my, my, visceral human reaction is kicking in even before going in and this you know you, you would understand this and she says to me of course she's been in the in, in that role she goes well we can hope and this you know the the co concept of the humor being um you know i'm probably going to be called out on this but the black humor of trauma yeah and she said well i hope it's a clear wound yeah. and i went not thinking about it now entering the scene yeah it was meaning that there wasn't um you know you know this is a fire there wasn't devastation everywhere and then and then of course we're dealing with the family right as the coroner is taking the body out on the other end and for the first time this is my first call i'm like and we were there i don't know how many hours obviously to, to deal with the family and the cumulative effect of that, I think people don't understand. And you would get it. You were a firefighter. I lasted, like I said, four to five years in mine. But what the what's happening, uh, you know, like you're seeing that over and over again, and the body and the brain has nowhere to put it. And if you're not getting the right support or the right outlet, where's it going to go? Yeah. yeah. It has to so, go somewhere, so right? True. Yeah, and it, it was so many years before I even realized that I had PTSD. It was literally only five years ago that I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. And 
the reason that happened was because moving across Canada to BC, I got a few different jobs, but the job that was most fire related here was uh, fire services supervisor. So I was in charge of seven different volunteer fire departments. And something happened along the way where two different firefighters that I was responsible for, um, I needed to get them counseling because they had experienced something traumatic and they weren't coming back to the job. And I was reaching out to them and I was trying to give them the numbers for counseling. And they're like, no, no, we're good. But they weren't coming back. They weren't volunteering anymore. So I went to a conference in Victoria it was fantastic. It was had a lot of public education aspects to it, but there were three or four different seminars on counseling, PTSD support, you know, team building type of things. And I went to this PTSD one and previously and I always, always associated PTSD with the military. As a firefighter myself, I literally had never even considered that firefighters would have PTSD. We just we're like, we can deal with it ourselves. Like we, we just don't even think, talk about that. And so I'm, I'm looking at this PTSD presentation and he's talking about all the different things. And then he lists off a dozen things that you want to watch for. If your firefighters have experiences, they might have PTSD and you might want to bring in support. And I had personally experienced 10 of the 12 things that he was talking about. In my career, in just the five years I was on the trucks. Yeah. <clears throat> and so after that presentation, I thought, oh my gosh, I might have PTSD. I went into a washroom and sat on a toilet, fully clothed, and I just burst into tears. And I phoned my husband and I was like, do you think everyone who watches this seminar just thinks they have PTSD? And he goes, no, Brandy, no. He goes, just go and check it out. Go for counseling and find out. And just five years ago, I went to counseling and I went to four or five sessions. And finally, I said to the counselor, I said, are we kind of ruling this out or do you think I have PTSD? And he goes, oh, my goodness. He goes, I diagnosed you on the first first appointment. If I, <laughs> if I haven't been clear, I'm not doing my job very well. But yes, you have complex PTSD and um, you've been dealing with it, whether you know it or not, with quilting for decades. So wow. you've kind of been self-soothing that way. So, and it was such, you know, some people might think, oh, it's such a big label. You're labeled with, no, it's not a label. It's a freedom actually to be diagnosed because you know that you're not crazy. You know that you don't have a physical illness or something that it's, it's the actual, you know, anxiety and trauma that you're experiencing over and over again that causes those physical symptoms and you can manage it. You can really. Absolutely. And, and it's, you know, what I often say, Brandy, and I've been a first responder. I was in, uh, I worked for um, a, one of the biggest behavioral health companies um, in Canada. Now they're international. But even before that, I was in EAP services. So I was, uh, you know, I would do trauma responses. So, I mean, I'd gone into, I've gone into, I've lost count of how many I did over my career. And still, I can still remember the one it was a murder suicide. Yeah. Um, and it was 11 division in Toronto. It's funny how you remember the details. Yeah. And I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, that's where I grew up. And it was a Trinidadian family. Mm. And they had six children. And what happened was generally, you know, with all the, the, the 911, um, the police were supposed to inform yeah. 
the six children. Well, guess what happened? There was a mishap. So myself and my partner had to inform all six children that they no longer had parents. And the one little one, and I was telling the story to my friend the other day, one of my uh, girlfriends the other day. Um, I think the littlest one, there was a clown. We, we, we had stickers and, you know, of course you're trying to deliver this message and we were coloring it. And I, I think the little child took the sticker and stuck it on my jacket. And I came home and for, I think for about maybe four to six months, that's that sat on that jacket. And then eventually one day I was going through it and I thought, I have to get rid of this. And that, that memory will, I know, last with me for the rest of my life. Okay. So, you know, if you think about soothing and the fact that we're, you're sharing about dysregulation and, you know, we need first responders because unfortunately bad things happen in all our lives, but it's, it's the um, things that happen in, in their worlds, like in your world with your little boy, um, because you're trying to go back home and be mommy and wife and friend and part of your society, your, your community. And, and it's not just let, letting it happen like it did for me. So that's why soothing is such an important word. And so, I mean, I'd love to talk a little bit about, you figured it out. You had figured it out prior to you know, yeah. even starting in, in EMS. So tell us about the quilting, because I find that very fascinating that, you know, something that one would not think of as being um, a strategy that you would use and how it has helped. Yeah. And I didn't really actually know that I was doing that all that time until the, you know, the, the psychologist or psychiatrist, I'm not even sure if I had a psychiatrist or psychologist, but anyway, until my counselor told me that I was doing that, um, I didn't actually know, but the first time that I really recollect stitching through something I was really dealing with emotionally was when my grandmother passed away and this was in the nineties, but, um, it was, it was getting towards the end of my career and she passed away at a time when I was really struggling with my career and so many things were happening all at the same time. And she was such a key figure in my life. And the loss of her was just something I was like going to be leading the funeral. I was going to be speaking. I was going to be organizing everything. I was going to be going through her belongings. I just was one of the people in my family who took charge of all those things. And I said to my husband, I have a huge quilting retreat this weekend. Should I even go? I have so much to do. And thank goodness, my husband said, you have to go. That is the thing you have to do to deal with this. And I remember stitching into the wee hours of the night at this retreat when everyone else is in bed and just crying and stitching and just dealing with this. And I have that art piece hanging above my fireplace to this day that I made. I made a textile art piece and it was a gorgeous landscape in colors that my grandmother would have loved. And I just, you know, I made something that would just make me feel connected to her. And so many of the, I'm like, I'm a textile artist and I teach quilting and I speak and judge in the quilting world and I travel all over the world. But the thing that I really do is I bring artfulness to quilters. So you might think, 
you know, my grandmother's quilt, the quilt on a bed. I bring artfulness to quilters and I, I get them to be creative and just really use their mind in their process. And um, I now teach classes called healing stitches and those kind of things for organizations like school divisions. And I'll go into a school division and I will teach a class where they have to choose from a list of a words or they have to pick a word that is very meaningful to them. And we incorporate it into our art piece and we're stitching and hand stitching and we're creating this. And I did this recently, I actually went back to central Canada where I was working. I was invited. This is kind of a really funny little story. I do all this cool thing stuff and everyone can see me on social media, but this gal called me up and I had hired her to work on the fire safety house in my career as a firefighter. And she said she's the head of education at a school division and she wants to bring me in to teach for some of her teachers on a professional development day. It's kind of comes full circle, right? So I go in and teach and we're choosing our words and creating our art. And then all of a sudden I realize three women, teachers, art teachers, counselors, three women at this table are all sitting there crying together. I'm just like, why are you guys crying? And they said, we, we were so excited that we could pick a PD day that was kind of crafty. And we're all just realizing in this moment that we're all dealing with a trauma that happened to us a few weeks ago in our school where a, a child committed suicide. And they're all picked words to deal with that. And they're all stitching and they're talking about it and they're dealing with it. And they all just realized at once that this was happening in that class. And so you never know when something's going to pop into your mind or be triggered or whatever, but moving your hands and your mind and doing something methodical is just a way to work through the trauma. And, you know, it, it you know, it's, it, have you ever heard of EMDR? Yes, I have had. So, EMDR. I, I, I'm, okay. so I'm a practitioner. Yeah. And it's making me think um, that, um, and, and this is coming just off the top of my head now with your quilting, because I hadn't really thought this through is that with trauma, with the five sensory yeah um what happens is um the body and the brain takes what it needs to to be able to cope through something that generally i, I see um as unbearable yeah and then it's like um having bits and bites coming at you right yeah. it could be a thought it could be a feeling it could be a body sensation whatever yeah. and emdr with kind of it's a process where you go back and forth with the left and right hemisphere um, with either sound or touch. But what it does is it simulates the right and left hemisphere to get you outside of the, uh, the conscious brain into the unconscious brain. So I'm thinking about your description here, right? So think about it. It's kind of like you're, you're so focused with the tactile, the sensory um, emotion, that I wonder, and this might be something for you with you and your kind of world, because you live in it about if that's the override that allows people to drop down, but because what we know is that with trauma, there's no beginning, middle and end. Yeah. And with reprocessing of trauma, that's the context that you're actually putting in. So I wonder if that's what the quilting does is it gets you um, to go back to that earlier version of whenever the trauma event occurred um, and then you're just kind of touching it and, and by staying outside of the conscious brain. This is, I that just came to me in a wave, just listening to the quilting. 
Yeah. And it's so fascinating because if you think of my particular case, you know, in my counseling, we've dealt with two completely different things. So, so I have this recurring trauma that was traumatic events that I witnessed. Those are completely gone. They're so suppressed. I can't remember any of them. None. And so that's really concerning. And that's something I've been dealing with for years in counseling. When it comes to the toxic workplace, I remember everything. So it's completely different, right? So when I, you know, if I'm figuring out how I'm going to deal with the stuff that is so suppressed that I can't even remember, like there are times when I, like, I don't even know any of the details about some things. So I'll give you an example. Like people who do not have PTSD don't really realize oh, we'll just remove the trigger and you'll be fine. No, it doesn't work like that, right? They, they don't realize how it comes about. So I was recently um, judging a quilt show and I, I, I was traveling and I put some deodorant on and I, my deodorant, my travel deodorant was so worn out that it crumbled and I, it ran out. So I had to run to the store, grab some deodorant and I came back and put it on and I thought, oh, I hate that smell. Why did I get baby powder? darn it. You know, I was disappointed with myself. For some reason, I hate that smell. Um, but then I had a shower at the end of the day, went to bed, and I had the worst night terrors I have had in ages. And this is part of how my PTSD manifests in night terrors. And this entire incident came back to me that I completely had forgotten about it. Of course, it was a child mortality. And yes baby powder was the thing that caused the mortality. And so I never have night tears when I'm traveling. It's a different place. It's not my own home where, you know, I have night tears. Now at home, when I put my head on the pillow, I always get anxiety. I have to do a calming routine before bed because I have night tears. I never have them when I'm travel, but that smell actually triggered the whole incident and then I'm able to go to counseling and do EMDR and all that and deal with that situation because I realize oh yeah I remember some of those things and, and that's the thing right I think you know so well said when you say uh, people that don't understand uh, PTSD that they say oh well just you know stay away from people places and things yeah. but I always say it's the subtle little buggers that are in the recesses of your unconscious like the smell of baby powder that you don't even remember. And then all of a sudden something comes up because the I always say the brain and the body is ready to release it, if that makes sense, right? And people go, what do you mean? I go, no, no, seriously. If that wasn't safe enough for it to come up at that time, the body and the brain would not have released it, even though you're thinking, Roxanne, that's nitrous. Who who feels good with those? But, you know, if it's too quick, that's where, um, you know, unfortunately, um, yeah. It can be tough on the person, right? So yeah. it's fascinating, um, you know, how things do evolve um, when the body and the brain comes about. So let's talk a little bit more about the quilting, the connection, the feeling, and kind of what you do out there, Brandy, in the world. Because I think you and I could probably keep talking at, at, you know, with all the stuff. And I'm so glad that we got connected the way we did. What a, what a fascinating conversation to have had. Uh, to you know today tell me a little bit more about that and kind of more about what you do out there in the world like you said you do this internationally you speak you you know um those types I'm, I'm i'm sure people that are listening are curious as i am 
Yeah, absolutely. So my business is called Quilter on Fire. So firefighter to quilter is kind of a fun plan words, but I teach and speak and judge quilt shows. And I have a podcast called the Quilter on Fire podcast. I've been doing that for years. And so there's three things that I bring to the world. I bring education and teaching quilters to become artful in their quilting. I have a community with my podcast and then I have quilt travel destinations. So I travel all over the world to quilt shows and I bring tours of quilters. And I've really turned my, you know, turning craft to healing into a huge part of my business because my lecture is called Your Mind Matters. And I have multiple lectures, ones on judging, you know, I have a few different lectures, but this trunk show, we call it in the quilting world, is a show where I show all of my work and all of my quilts over the years. But I've infused five messages into my trunk show called Your Your Mind Matters. And the messages, the reason I decided to do these messages is because it's helped me so much. And although I know I'm very well aware that not everyone has PTSD, there are people out there who have it and don't know it. Um, but people deal with all kinds of trauma in their lives, whether it's just being shunned from a group of people or being abused verbally by someone or, you know, and so when I do my trunk show or my lecture, I always have people coming up at the end saying, you just opened my eyes to something that I hadn't even realized was happening to me, or I really resonated with your story and I'm going to keep quilting because that's my saving grace. And I get those kind of comments at the end. And so the reason I came up with these five life lessons was because my best friend is a counselor. And so she spent her full career. Um, she's a social worker with her master's degree, but she spent her full career in school division as sort of the lead social worker. She recently retired and she has become a counselor full-time, which is her true passion. And so I got together with her on a girls weekend. We, we live far apart. She lives in central Canada. I live in BC and um, we got together in a girls weekend at this resort. It was amazing. And we sat down with a glass of wine and we hashed out five life lessons that based on what's happened to me in my life and what I could really talk about to help other people. And so if you want, I'll just quickly tell you the life lessons. There's five of them. The first one is to surround yourself with those who lift you up. The second lesson is to quilt to de-stress and calm your mind. The third life lesson is to practice gratitude and affirmations and form good habits. Um, number four is to do the work before you're ready in the quilting world. And then life lesson number five is the one that's most important for me. And that is care for yourself first. You know, so many people care for others, care for others, care for others. And if there's anything left in the bottom of their cup, they care for themselves last. And that's what I do most. So, um, you know, just trying to teach my son, I'm telling him care for yourself first until your cup is overflowing and then you can give to others as well. So what an amazing, amazing five steps, like such good, such good uh, um, learnings. And this has been, uh, thank you for your time. And um, for anybody that uh, is listening that, um, and I think, you know, for senior leaders to really listen, to think it doesn't, you know, we can talk, we were talking about EMS services, but you know, trauma be it small or big t trauma is the reality of what is happening out there in the world and someone may be working with you but you have to still think that they may have they bring themselves with them and they may be experiencing some of the things that we've discussed today 
So to really uh, think through how are you creating the space to support people that may be having symptoms that do not make sense, ensuring that you have uh, things that they can support them, whether it's clinical services, coaching, having somebody like Brandy come in and do a workshop or, or a, a, you know, a speaking event. What, what a gift to be able to put context for people to say that healing should be the first thing. And when people are happy, connected, um, and not distracted by symptoms, then they bring the biggest, best version of themselves to work. And we all want to, I think, stay connected at work. Um, so Brandy, if people wanted to get a hold of you, they wanted to work with you, they wanted to go on one of these world retreats, you know, which sounds like fun right about now, where can they get a hold of you? My website is quilteronfire.com and you can find me everywhere on the socials as the quilter on fire. Awesome. So for everyone, um, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. Um, I'm going to think about what kind of things can I do um, to help me um, soothe myself. That's uh, and something that I love to do. So I, I also challenge you to do the same. Um, and you may be already doing it, or maybe it's something that you need to explore. So uh, for anyone wanting to connect with me, you know, you can go to my website. If you're wanting to know about uh, your ability to connect um, and be mentally resilient, either at work or at home, just go to roxandurhodge.com forward slash quiz. You'll get a little mini quiz. And when you fill it out, we'll uh, send you some recommendations and um, my book is attached to it, both of them. You can um, get some more information there or just reach out to me. So again, Brandy, thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for hanging in there again with me this week. And we will chat again with you next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.